set list in association with Seven Digital. This week, Spotify and the streaming revolution. Welcome to Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. I'm Andy Malt. With me is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Hello. This is another in our series of episodes looking back at some of the biggest stories from CMU's first 20 years. We're going to look at the history of Spotify from a plucky young upstart to the thing that's propping up the entire record industry now. And which everybody in the record industry has learned to hate. <laughs> because you're only a success in the recorded music business if every record company decides that you are evil and the problem. In the 90s, we all hated... I say we, I wasn't here. Nothing to do with me. In the 90s, the record industry hated MTV and the big bad retailers. And every artist who wasn't succeeding was convinced that it was the fault of MTV and the big... Re- if only MTV would play my video. Oh, if only HMV would stick me in a box in the front. Then I would be a success. These days... It is the Spotify that everybody hates. And that's proof of how powerful Spotify has become. And the aim of this special edition of Setlist is to tell you the story from the moment that the idea of there being a Spotify was first thought all the way through to them being hated by everybody. I'm not sure that's in the script. Well, you are starting in 2006, which is quite a long time ago when we're talking about a streaming service. Yeah, I, that's not the moment. Well, it's possible the thought happened in 2006, but I've not started it from the thought. I've started it from when the company was set up. I'm pretty confident. When in 2006 was the company set up? You don't know, do you? It's uh, October. Let's pretend it was October. I am almost certain that the thought happened on the 7th of April of that year. I think that they thought of it as they were incorporating the company. Oh, they were setting up the company to do something else. They just like they just went in to sign some forms. They're like, we'll, we'll sign. We'll, I want to set up a company. We'll sign some starting up of company forms. And on that and, form, and it then, said... And then as we're writing them, we'll decide what the company is. Well, on the form, it probably had, what type of business are you doing? Usually it does when you register a company. And at that point, they were like, oh, my God, we haven't got anything. I know. Streaming music. Because the founders of Spotify were not in the music business. They were not. Daniel Ek, who uh, everyone remembers as the CEO of Spotify, because that's what he still is. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't require much of a memory. Was, uh, in 2006, the CEO of an online game called Stardoll, which apparently is still quite popular. And his co-founder, Martin Lorentzen, was the co-founder of, in fact, it still is the co-founder because you can't stop being a co-founder, can you? He is the co-founder of online advertising company Trade Doubler. So the point is, they came from more of a tech background. Indeed, Daniel Eck at one point had been involved in a torrent-based enterprise. And of course, because in the music industry, BitTorrent was always associated with piracy, even though torrent is just a way of distributing data around the internet in a more efficient way. Yeah. doesn't have to be (laughs) ripped off music that you're sharing. Because in the music industry, whenever the word torrent is raised, people assume illegal file sharing. There have been various points when artists and songwriters and music people were trying to lay into Spotify and say, this sinister organisation, hey, look, one of its founders even used to be involved in that torrent technology, that piracy thing. So yes, their background was tech, I suppose, is the point. Yes. They were not coming from the music industry. It is also very quickly noting that although... I sort of express surprise almost that we're going all the way back to 2006 to tell the Spotify story. I suppose it is worth mentioning that the idea of streaming music was not actually that new. 
no. in 2006. I was streaming music in 1998. I'm not sure you I were. Think, no, I wasn't. It was not long after that. In the early 90- 2000s? Early 2000s for definite. People always forget that Yahoo. That's what I used to stream music on. Were innovators. They bought a company called Launch. Yeah. And then we had Yahoo Launch, which I suppose in some ways was a little bit like what Pandora is today. And indeed, Pandora was also early to the market and dabbling with the idea of a personalised radio service coming through streams. Yahoo Launch also had videos as well as music. So (laughs) let's not forget that Yahoo were innovators in streaming music. Problem was, it only worked through Internet Explorer, if I remember rightly. The minute I started using Firefox, I could no longer stream through Yahoo Launch. So streaming in itself was not brand new, but I think it's certainly true to say that nobody had properly commercialised a fully, truly on-demand streaming music service by the mid-2000s when these two tech guys decided that that might be what they wanted to do. Yeah, so it took a couple of years to develop the software and to get all the licensing in place. I think the licensing was the harder bit of that equation. So Spotify officially went live after a period of being invite-only beta in October 2008, exactly two years after October 2006, which might have been when they set up the company. But it was according to your made-up version of Spotify's history. Well, roughly made up. But it was October 2008 when they officially went live with it. They announced they had their deals in place, and so that allowed them to go public and stop kind of it just being a thing they were testing. And when it launched in 2008... October. October 2008, it was launched in a bunch of European countries, Spotify obviously being a Swedish company, so obviously in its home country, but a bunch of other European countries, including the UK. And I suppose the important thing to notice, you mentioned the licensing deals and how tricky those were. But by launch, it had many of the important licensing deals in place. So it wasn't that they went live with a bunch of indies, which some startups did because they couldn't get the majors on board. So when it launched on the recording side, had Universal Music already on board, what was then still being called Sony BMG on board. It had EMI on board because they still existed as a standalone major. They had Warner on board. They had Merlin on board. That being the one that people often don't go live with because indies. And Charles Coldus, who runs Merlin and has done ever since it was created by the indie sector in the mid-2000s, often talks about how one of his first meetings was with Spotify and how it was such a revelation because so many of the other big digital platforms in the run-up to Merlin and immediately after Merlin launched were a little bit resistant to having to do a bigger deal with the indies, the protocol previously having been do your major label deals, and then sort out the indies later. Everyone else will follow. Whereas Spotify, Charles always says, were much more, no, 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 we need you guys on board. How are we going to do a deal? So they they were very positive about Spotify relationship from the off. They also had like the big distributors, The Orchard. I can't remember whether Sony had a slice of that at the time. Obviously now The Orchard is wholly owned by Sony Music, but it wasn't originally. It may be they already had a bit of an equity in it, but it was definitely operating pretty autonomously from Sony at the time, representing a whole load of indie labels and artists all over the world. So Spotify had done a really good job of getting, not everybody, obviously, but all the majors, many of the indies, most of the catalogue they would need to launch in Europe, already in place by the time they launched. And we have to remember that in the very early 2000s, the major record companies were trying to build their own services. Yeah. And so didn't really like talking to anybody else who was trying to launch a download platform. Then we started to get a few startups, mainly offering downloads. Obviously, Apple iTunes, which we've talked about before on one of these special editions of Setlist, got their licensing deals. But I'd say by the mid-2000s, basically, if you had an iTunes-type business and you went into the major record companies, they were like, okay, we get what you're doing. This is how it now works. We'll sign you up. 
problem was they were signing them up with digital rights management technology, which meant that nobody could use iPods of their service so they wouldn't work. But the licenses were there on the table. Whereas when Spotify arrived to do their first deals, Daniel and Martin, this was a fundamentally different way of doing business. Yeah. This was going to be a subscription service with an ad-funded bit and a paid-for bit. And we had to have a different way of sharing the money. And generally, the majors were still very resistant of any sort of innovative deal, particularly as iTunes was just about starting to work. And certainly in the UK and the US, iTunes money was starting to go up. And over the next few years, iTunes would really explode and loads of money would be coming in. And so there was a real nervousness in the record companies of, oh, my God, what if we do a deal with these guys with this innovative new thing? But what if that screws up iTunes? And suddenly that revenue stream that's suddenly exploding disappears overnight. So there was resistance in the record companies to doing these deals. So it is kudos to Spotify that they managed to get those deals in place. I mean, a big part of it was advances in equity. That's definitely true. Advance checks always help when you go in, particularly to the major record companies, but all record companies. But again, I suppose to an extent that's kudos to Spotify because what they were able to do was to have the technology because that was their background and they worked out how they might deliver it on a tech point of view. They learned about how the music industry works in terms of all the different licenses that they would have to do. They kind of had a consumer proposition in mind, but they also raised an awful lot of money. Yeah. And the raising an awful lot of money bit was absolutely essential. There were plenty of other startups at this time with vaguely similar ideas but were not able to raise the finance that meant that they could walk into Sony, Universal, Warner, EMI and secure the kind of deal that they needed in the territories where they wanted to launch. But they did manage to get those deals. And I always talk about how the first time I used Spotify, which I think it was still when it was in an invite-only phase. Yeah, well, the, fr- the, the free accounts were invite-only for some time after it launched. And I was definitely on a free account at that point. And you could buy your way in from the start, £10 a month. That's never changed. But yeah, if you wanted a free account, you had to be invited by someone, which I think we both were invited by the same person. We probably were. And I clicked on the link and I went in and obviously you had to install the app because you couldn't do it through the browser at that point. And there was no mobile app. So I installed the app on my Mac and you opened it up and then all of that music was there. And you could tell immediately they've got deals with nearly everybody here. I mean, obviously, there are gaps behind the scenes, but all the obvious usual suspects were definitely there. And you could just click and play. I mean, today, it's like, well, of course, that's what the service is. But at the time, your first reaction was, how can this be legal? Yeah. Because all the services you'd ever seen like that previously were not legal services. They were, they were copyright infringing services, pulling music from who knows where. And so initially it was, Wow, how, how have they managed to get permission to stream all of this music? Yeah, well, I remember going back to my parents that Christmas and sitting down with my dad. This thing had just launched and just going, look, at this. you say a song, see if they've got it. And he was going, well, there's this rare record I've been trying to get for years. You can't get it anywhere. Look that up. And I was like, which of the seven different versions of it do you want to listen to? And there it was, ready to play. So in 2008, Spotify launched in the UK and Sweden and a bunch of other European countries. And although, as we say, Streaming wasn't new. It had been around for nearly 10 years by that point. There had been the various streaming services in the early 2000s that had gained some traction. But I think it is fair to say that it was around about 2008 when Spotify launched. And I suppose we should credit that Deezer was launching around about the same time initially in France. It does feel with hindsight, we might have to ignore Pandora in the US and personalized radio in this statement. But with hindsight, (laughs) 
this was basically the start of the streaming revolution. It's when it's when yeah. the streaming side of the recorded music business really started to begin. And from that point on, there were obviously new developments and innovations every year. The big innovation in 2009 was the launch of the smartphone app. I mean, smartphones hadn't been around that long then, but the iPhone was starting to take off and launching the smartphone app boosted signups for Spotify. It also allowed Spotify to start doing deals with mobile providers to bundle the service in, which has been a source of early growth and ongoing income for streaming services for a long time now. But in many cases, it means that your service is bundled with everyone's mobile accounts. The streaming service gets a bit of money from the mobile providers for that, but basically then it's just this app that's on people's phones and they don't even realise they've got it. Yeah, how successful those mobile bundles have been have varied greatly from country to country, from digital service provider to digital service provider, and crucially, I think, from mobile company to mobile company. Well, these days, I think generally you have to opt into it. They, they say, do you want this? They don't just stick it on your phone. But I think in the early days of those mobile bundles, I mean, you're right. It was an easy way for streaming companies to sign up lots of people, particularly when they entered a market for the first time. And so they did play an important role. And some of those people are then converted into people who are actively using the service long term. But I think how successful those bundles are, and this isn't just Spotify, it applies to all the DSPs, is how the mobile company communicates it. And I remember a few years ago, when the mobile bundles were much more part of the conversation in the music industry, because they were helping to, to grow this, this industry that was starting to gain momentum. And somebody comparing a mobile bundle, say in France versus a mobile bundle, in I think it was the Netherlands, and saying that the telco in the Netherlands had done a much better job of working that partnership. Because one of the problems was, I mean, also here in the UK, the big deal was with Vodafone, wasn't it? Yeah. And at the outset, the Vodafone offer to their users was, okay, now you're on our premium content package or whatever they called it. What would you like? Would you like to have access to Spotify or, and I think it was Sky Sports, yeah. or it was something else. But often the comms was, would you like Spotify with your Vodafone account? And that kind of was forgetting that outside of our world, outside of the music industry, at that point, a lot of people had no idea what Spotify was. Yeah. Now, that's less true now because I think Spotify has got so much better brand awareness, particularly here in the UK. But some mobile companies like this telco, I think it was in the Netherlands, although don't quote me on that, they were doing it much cleverer, which they were training their staff in their shops on the high street to say to people when they came in, would you like all the music in the world on your phone? And if the person said yes, they were like, OK, well, let me show you how that would work. And so by introducing it like that, rather than saying, would you like Spotify bundled in, it was really helping A, to get more people to sign up, but B, crucially, the people who were signing up genuinely understood what the service was and wanted to use it, rather than, yeah, it just being there because yeah. they didn't quite know what they were signing up to. So another early innovation, or perhaps quirk, was when Spotify was still trying to work out how its business model was going to work and also placate the music industry a bit. Is they started selling MP3s which that was a bit weird. It didn't last very long. And actually, that was the first of a number of things that Spotify did, where although they made a little bit of a splash when they first added it as functionality, you always question quite how committed they were to it. And as you say, that might be because ultimately they were trying to placate the music industry, who were still, even though they'd done their deals, a little bit nervous that this streaming thing might screw up the download business, which by this point was definitely starting to explode. Because the buy-by download buttons within the Spotify app were never very in your face. They I see really... they sort of light grey on dark grey. They were quite well, hard the whole to see. Thing, and it was weird because when Spotify first launched, it was really simple software. You went in, 
and you'd searched for music and you played it. And crucially, it looked very like the iTunes software. So if you knew how to use iTunes, you knew how to use Spotify. But it was really fast. I remember I quite often listened to stuff on Spotify that I already had in iTunes because Spotify was just faster. But the download bit was really clunky and not very well implemented. And And yeah, like you say, it, it didn't feel like they were really that into the idea of doing it, but it just sort of, if they felt like it was something they needed to do because people were saying, well, you can't just let people stream stuff. They won't buy it. So they, you know, they said, well, we'll let them buy it as well. And then no one did. At the same time, they also added a bit of functionality on the desktop app where you could access your MP3 collection if it was sitting on your PC from the Spotify player. Yes, which still exists. And I think that was responding to the fact that although they'd done all of these licensing deals, there were still clearly plenty of gaps in their catalogue so as a music fan who by that point had got used to using their mp3 collection through probably like the apple music app or whatever were like well okay spotify is brilliant but there's all of these tracks that i have in my mp3 collection which maybe i got legally maybe i got illegally but which i can no longer play so it was trying to sync the old with the new but not like i mean importantly not like we discussed in the itunes episode itunes match where that would upload all of your mp3s to their server and then with apple music that mashes all of your mp3s into the Apple Music system, so you've got this kind of complete streaming service. Anything you can't get on streaming service, you can buy as a download and have it within that. This is just, it's the Spotify software accesses it on your computer. And that's yeah, it. only on the device where the MP3s are yeah. actually stored. And I suppose of all of that, with the allowing you to access your MP3s through their software, with the trying to sell you MP3s, as we say, it did feel like Spotify's heart wasn't really in that. They were doing it, whether that was to placate the labels, whether it was to placate certain users, But I suppose, ultimately, in their minds, I think they were probably thinking, all of this stuff about accessing MP3s and downloading, this is a temporary blip. You know, we are going to change everything so that in a few years' time, and they were right to think this, no one will be asking, how do I access my MP3 collection? No one will be asking, can I buy an MP3 of that track? People's attitude to how you consume music will change, and these things very much are temporary blips. And you felt like what they were doing were offering you temporary solutions that at the time they thought, yeah, these aren't going to be here very long. So for those first few years, it was only available in Europe. It still had pretty impressive growth figures. In March 2011, they announced they had 1 million paying subscribers. That had then doubled to 2 million by September the same year. And then less than a year later, it doubled again. And they also announced they had 15 million active users in total. Yeah, we had that whole period where twice a year they would start announcing how many subscribers they had and we were all trying to see how fast it was growing then there was the difference between how many paying users did they have versus how many free users did they have and sometimes it would be slightly confusing because they would announce how many premium users they had one month and then they would talk about the active audience three months later and it's like okay so we have to deduct that from that to work out how many free users they are but they were slowly growing you mentioned obviously the mobile bundles were having an impact on that and although Spotify generally were pretty active in putting out at least a couple of times a year announcements on how many users they'd signed up for paid and for free. They very rarely broke it down either by country. So we never really knew, okay, in the various European countries where they're now active, how many subscribers do they have country by country? And they never broke it down versus this many people are actually paying money into our bank account every month. And this many people, actually, they're on a bundle. So they're not paying us directly. We're getting some money off a telco somewhere. But nevertheless, there was steady growth to the extent that people did start to think, yeah, this looks like this is really going to take off. But as you say, for this whole period, it was basically operating in a bunch of European territories. And of course, everybody started asking the question, well, hang on a second. What about the biggest recorded music market in the world? 
when is Spotify going to launch in the United States of America? Yeah, if you're going to be the dominant music provider, you kind of do need to be in the US. And that took quite a long time to sort out. And that was a licensing thing. Yes, because although in Europe, obviously they'd been working, it had not been an easy thing to do, but they had gone to the labels and said, this is what we're offering, do a deal with us. And they got the publishers in on board later as well on deals that have become contentious, but we'll get to that. But the US, the labels were a lot more resistant to this new model, particularly the free service. Yeah, it was the freemium bit that the American labels seemed to take a long time to be persuaded about. And I always thought it was quite interesting that in Europe, the conversations around those initial licenses were happening, what, around about 2007. And actually, around about that time, there was a conversation going on in the music industry about how advertising income was a potential big cash cow for the music industry that it hadn't traditionally accessed. Yeah. And there were a number of startups that were actually trying to be advertising-funded download platforms. It was never entirely clear how that was going to work, but, I mean, We7... We7, you downloaded an MP3 that had an advert attached to it, and then once you'd listened to it a certain number of times, you could upload it and re-download it again without the ad... Something like that. There's a reason that they switched to being a streaming service. Yes, because We7 ultimately became Blinkbox. Uh, The original Gavera service in Australia was a sponsored ad-funded download platform that also became a streaming service. And then there were startups like uh, Spiral Frog. Do you remember that? Which was some sort of... Well, do you know what? Researching this, it really reminded me (laughs) how many streaming services have come and gone Tried in the launch. time that Spotify has been around. So lots of people were talking about the potential opportunity of advertising-funded digital music services. And, of course, the original YouTube deals had been done by that point. YouTube at that point being something that the music industry was quite excited about, more on which in enough of these <laughs> special editions when we actually look at the YouTube story. But, of course, YouTube was ad-funded, and the labels were quite excited about the new income that they might have coming in from that. So around about 2007, there was a lot of talk in record companies about, oh, all this advertising money that we've not been having over the years. Maybe that's what could save us. Because we also have to remember that this is the late 2000s when the record industry was getting close to its lowest ever ebb. Yeah. And although iTunes was starting to take off and that money was starting to become good, I mean, overall, they were still making less money every year. And so there was a moment where people were like, well, maybe advertising is it. We've missed a trick all these years. There's all this advertising money. And that was the moment at which Martin and Daniel arrived with their Spotify service that said, well, we have two services here, we have a paid-for service, and then we have an ad-funded service, and we'll help you get all that advertising money. And so that sort of played to what the record companies were talking about. That excitement about ad income faded quite quickly. Yeah. Although YouTube actually did start to bring in some pretty decent ad income in the years following those initial deals, people quite quickly got over this whole idea of, oh, advertising income is going to be the saviour of the record industry. And I sort of feel by the time Spotify was sitting down with the American labels, Everybody was over (laughs) the idea that advertising was the solution. I suppose also the thing to remember is the US had the whole other side to streaming, the Pandora model, the ad-funded personalized radio, which had got to market a lot earlier in America because of tedious licensing reasons that we won't go into. But Pandora was already becoming quite established by this point. So I think in America, there was a much more of a mindset of, okay, personalized radio We understand why that possibly should be free. Actually, there's nothing we can do about that anyway because of the way way it works. But we can see that maybe personalized radio should be free, paid for by advertising. But fully on-demand jukebox experience, no, that should be paid for. 
And interestingly, Audio, another of the uh, streaming startups you were kind of alluding to before, yeah. that was the model they went to coming out of the American music industry of, okay, we'll do personalized radio for free and we'll do fully on demand paid for. And I think that's what the American music industry was pushing for. But Spotify were adamant from the off. This can only work if we have the free version to huck people in and then we can upsell them to the paid-for version. So they really stood their ground on that. They were going to hold off and not launch in the US until the labels agreed and signed up to the same business model as they had in Europe. Yeah, so they did stand their ground, although they did also have to make some compromises. It wasn't exactly the same deal as Europe. I mean, the big one being that the free accounts were limited to 10 hours of listening per month and, in uh, fact, and only playing a song five times before you couldn't access it anymore. At various points around about that time, some of those limitations were also applied here in Europe, weren't yes. they? Yes. There's been tweaks to the freemium service over time, but Spotify has always pushed for the limitations to be lifted. They've kind of placated the industry at times by limiting that service, but then always pushed against that again and we need to give more access to people and of course the whole debate about whether or not there should be the free level rumbled on for years taylor swift entered that debate at one point and as you say although spotify has introduced various limitations on free over the years it has whenever possible got rid of them so now although there is less mobile functionality for example on the free version versus the paid for version the free version has been pretty sophisticated for quite some time now and it's sort of weird that for the last two years people have kind of stopped talking about that and have stopped bothering themselves about the fact that people can access a pretty damn good streaming experience without paying any subscription fees and just tolerating a relatively small number of adverts. Well, the fact that everyone's turned their attention to YouTube over the last few years has helped. And Spotify has become slightly less of the bad guy. Because when people complain about YouTube, they're saying, well, YouTube's not handing over as much money as Spotify. And if that's your argument, you can't then go and Spotify is evil. <laughs> Maybe you can. Maybe you say, yeah, YouTube's not handing over as much money as Spotify. And we hate Spotify. But generally, it does all seem to have calmed down a bit. And part of that is because when the music industry at various points has tried to persuade Spotify to limit the free version, well, I mean, there were some people at the record companies who just wanted them to turn freemium off. Yeah. So there would only be the paid for version or possibly go like I described before, what audio did. OK, maybe offer personalized radio for free, but the full service you have to pay for. One of the things Spotify has always said back to the music industry is, but while YouTube is offering all that music available for free, if we make it that the only way you can get into Spotify is by paying £10 a month, well, that's going to be really hard because all the people currently using Spotify free who we're hoping one day we might upsell to £10 a month, they're not going to start paying just because we turn free off. They're just all going to go over to YouTube. So almost in a way, one of the reasons why the music industry ended up being quite so vocal about YouTube was that while YouTube existed in its current form, it was harder to try and pressure Spotify to turn off free. But you're right, because everyone got so distracted with Safe Harbor reform and Article 13 and all of that, people have sort of stopped talking about the issues they may or may not have with Spotify having its free level. You referenced Taylor Swift being down on Spotify's free level. There have been lots of highlight moments over the last decade where artists have kicked against Spotify for various reasons. Of course, before Taylor Swift was the big anti-Spotify artist, Adele was in there as the artist who kept her albums off Spotify, kept them off for a long time. You had other artists like Coldplay kept their Milo Zyloto album off streaming services, but only for a short period of time. I mean, Adele went like years. The difference between Adele and Taylor Swift, I suppose, was that actually Adele's problem was with streaming at large. Yes. Whereas Taylor Swift was specifically picking on Spotify. What Taylor Swift was saying was, I have no problem with paid for streaming 
I just don't like free streaming and Spotify aren't flexible enough to allow me to be in one but not the other. Well, I suppose the issue at the time around kind of Adele and Coldplay, like kind of early 2010s, was that uh, iTunes was still the dominant digital music service. I mean, probably becoming less so, but it was certainly it was the one that was bringing in the most money. And artists and labels alike were both worried about cannibalization. They were worried that if people signed up to Spotify, they would stop paying to download stuff and then not as much money would come through and the whole industry would collapse. And so, I mean, it was generally big artists who this would work for, like your Taylor Swifts and your Adele's and your Coldplay's, who could then pretty much rely on, I mean, probably still rely on a lot of their fans going out and buying a download or a CD who could afford to keep their music off Spotify and let the money roll in. Whereas that wouldn't work for a lot of artists, certainly artists who are trying to gain attention as their album is released rather than someone who's already got an audience of millions. But even for those sort of superstar artists who could get away with doing that and, and so were either not letting their music onto streaming at all or not letting it onto Spotify because of the free thing or putting it out as a CD and as a download for a week or a month before it goes on the streaming platforms, there were still plenty of critics of that approach. Plenty of people, not just at Spotify, but within the music industry, who were rightly, in my opinion, pointing out that the problem with that, although I, I get where they're coming from, and they probably can make more money. I mean, certainly, <laughs> if you look at Adele's record sales... She did all right. She did do very did well, pretty well, indeed. Now, obviously, we don't know quite how much not being on streaming helped with that, but it probably helped a bit. But some people were saying at the time, the issue here is, the superstar artists are saying, OK, in order to make more money, in order to ensure we still have the download sales and maybe some CD sales, we're not going to put it onto streaming immediately or for a few weeks or for like months or even a year in some cases. The problem with that approach, though, is if the record industry looks at all the consumers in the world, its best consumers, the people who are most committed to the product of music, were the people who by this point were paying £10, €10, Euros, $10 a month into Spotify or whichever. Yeah, most music consumers do not spend £120 a year on music. They would probably buy an Adele CD and that would be it. So basically what the music industry was saying, to its best customers, to the people who are helping the record industry slowly recover, screw you, you can't have our biggest releases, yeah. which was a really weird position to be in. But we did have a number of years where when big releases came out, that would be part of the conversation. Will they let Spotify have it? Will they let the streaming services have it? Will they hold it back for a week, for a month, or whatever? Although today we don't tend to have those conversations in the same way. Of course, if we're talking about artists having spats with Spotify, there is one we have to mention. Yeah, one of the, the absolute classics, Nigel Godrich and Tom York, who, I mean, they had a different argument entirely. They pulled their album as Atoms for Peace off Spotify, arguing that it wasn't because it was bad for them, but it was bad for new artists. And they were standing up for the small artists by not letting anyone listen to their album. Yeah, so they weren't saying we have a problem with free versus premium. They weren't saying we want to hold back on music so we don't cannibalize our download sales. They were basically taking aim at the entire Spotify business model and, by extension, the entire streaming business model. And I suppose were among the first high-profile artists to go public in saying the money we earn from streaming the payment per stream is tiny, it's too small, it's just not sustainable. And yeah, what Tom Bjork and Nigel Godrich were saying, we can still live off our music, that's fine, but how could new artists ever possibly hope to live off their music when the per stream payments that are Spotify and all of its competitors are paying are so tiny, so small? They were basically saying the streaming business model is wrong, it, it, it can't continue like and this. And that really 
kicked off. You couldn't go to a music conference around that time without seeing at least six panels on that subject. It was a big thing. And it it was off the back of that that Spotify launched its outreach program to artists, initially called Fan Insights, and then it became Spotify for Artists with more information on kind of how you could earn off Spotify and, and how their system was structured and how it favoured different levels of artists. Yeah, because I think what Spotify correctly identified once you started to have a number of very famous artists coming out in public and dissing either Spotify directly or streaming in general, in the US, by this point, for various reasons we won't go into, Pandora had become very unpopular in the music community and it felt a lot of heat from songwriters and artists and labels and publishers. And then even though Pandora's business model at that time was fundamentally different to Spotify's business model and the licensing was totally different, the artists and songwriters who had been laying into Pandora almost overnight switched to then laying into Spotify. So there was a period where a lot of artists, whether that was at conferences or on their social feeds or in the media, were starting to lay into Spotify in particular or streaming in general. And I think what Spotify recognised and the reason they began that outreach programme and the, the data platform that became Spotify for artists is that because they had done their deals in 2007 with the big record companies and Merlin, the distributors, then on the publishing side, with the big publishers and with all the collecting societies. And then they got all of their licenses in place and the labels and distributors started pumping the music into their servers. They'd never actually had to speak directly to the artists and songwriters. And because the labels and the publishers and the societies in the main hadn't done a very good job of explaining how the deals had been structured and how the royalties were going to be paid on this thing called streaming, And because streaming is much more complicated than selling a CD in a shop, I mean, you sell a CD in the shop, you know you sell a CD for 15 quid, you know the retailer takes a bit of that, you know the... 15 quid? (laughs) This was uh, back in the day. Sell it for 15 quid, retailer takes a bit, distributor takes a bit, then the rest lands with the label. Label then has to pay the songwriters and the publishers through the mechanical licensing system. And then what's left is shared between the label and the artist subject to contract. And most people who had any knowledge of the record industry could get their head around that. Whereas this idea of, well, hang on a second, millions of people are putting £10 a month into the system and then advertisers are putting money into the system and then lots of streams happen. And then my label tells me I'm, I'm owed £5 for all my streams. What does that mean? And so there was a lot of confusion in the artist community, the songwriter community about how this worked. And I think Spotify felt that that was contributing to all this negativity. Now, that's not to say that there aren't issues with the model. There are issues with the model and Spotify were involved in setting up that model. But I think Spotify were right to an extent to think the artists who are laying into us and our business model, actually, at least some of the issues that they have are not issues with Spotify. They are issues with their record company or their distributor or their publisher or their society. But people don't understand how it works. So they're just laying into Spotify when, in fact, on this point and this point and this point, maybe they should be laying into their label or publisher. Now, Spotify couldn't come out right and say that because these labels and publishers and societies were really important business partners and in and some shareholders. cases shareholders in the business because they've got equity as part of their licensing deals. So they couldn't just come out and say that. But that outreach program, I think, was actually quite a clever way initially reaching out to managers and then to artists directly. More recently, it actually, I would say, took them far too long to realise that there were a whole load of songwriters who were not part of that. And the whole reaching out songwriters came much later. And it was off the back of all that that you, Chris Cook, were hired by the Music Manager Forum to start writing your Dissecting the Digital Dollars reports and dissect all those digital dollars, work out how the money was flowing through the system. And uh, well, you said the deal is more complicated in the streaming. You have that good flow chart that shows the retail model one side and the streaming model the other side. And uh, 
it's, it's yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> it is very complicated. So yes, the Music Managers Forum, recognising that increasingly artists and their managers were looking at their royalty statements, seeing money flowing through, the labels, publishers, societies hadn't explained how it's working, and sort of came to us and said, well, can you work it out? And that's what the entire Digital Dollar Project was about, was going and talking to the labels, the distributors, the publisher societies, the people who'd done the deals, the people who had worked at those companies and had since left, who are always the best <laughs> for finding out how things really work. And then going to the managers and saying, okay, let me explain to you. This is how it works on the recording side. This is how it works on the song side because it's kind of different. The deals are the same, but the way the royalties flow are different. And this is how the sums are being done. And this is how your label, your publisher society is working out what you are owed. And you managers need to understand how this works. There are also issues with the system. And it's not for me or CMU to tell you what you should do about those issues. But we can tell you what the issues are. And then artists, songwriters managers and labels and publishers and societies can all sit down and have these conversations. And so, yeah, that's where the Dissecting the Digital Dollar project came from. And indeed, we continue to this day as the market morphs and new issues are arise to try and explain what's going on. Given that there were all of those ongoing issues that were talked about for a long time, it was actually quite surprising how long it took for any legal action to be launched. But, you know, good thing come to those who wait. When the legal action did arrive, it was, in some cases, they're talking in terms of billions of dollars of damages. So that's fun. Yeah, it was quite a long time before we had uh, some legal action going on about the way the streaming business works. Of course, it came in America. Of course. That's where the litigation arose. And so we then entered the period of Spotify's history where the big story was the fact that songwriters and publishers in America were suing Spotify over the fact that Spotify hadn't paid all of the royalties that were due to those songwriters and to those publishers for the streaming of their songs, which might sound like a pretty fair thing to do. If Spotify have been streaming your music, not been paying you the royalties that you are due, then you probably should sue them because that's Spotify misbehaving. But of course, it was all much more complicated than that. And there isn't time for us to go into the nitty gritty of all of these disputes. There are back in the archive somewhere, there are whole editions of set lists where this is all we talk about. And indeed, the Dissecting Digital Dollar book the more recent version that goes through it as well. But it was all to do with the so-called mechanical royalties in the US, which were not getting paid. In the US, actually, there's a compulsory license covering mechanical. So it wasn't that these songwriters and publishers needed to negotiate a deal with Spotify on what they should be paid, because the law actually said every time this songwriter or publisher's song is streamed, this is what Spotify should pay them for exploiting the mechanical rights in the songs. However, under that compulsory license, Spotify was obliged to fill out a form and then start paying the money. But the issue was that Spotify didn't know what songs had been streamed or who owned those songs. And it brings us to the whole music rights data issue. So in Europe, where Spotify began, at the end of every month, it would pay recording royalties to the record industry to whichever label or distributor had pushed a track into its system. The maths for working out what everybody's due is quite complicated. But that basic principle, which is you uploaded the track, so we will pay you the royalties. But on the song side, Spotify doesn't know who owns the songs because the songwriters, the publishers aren't actually providing any content. Hmm. They're merely providing licenses that cover the songs in the recordings that the labels have uploaded. But Spotify doesn't know who owns any one song copyright, who wrote the song. It doesn't even know which song is in the track. It knows what the track is called. <laughs> yeah. But the track might be called Hello. And... Well, initially, they could have been pretty certain it wasn't Adele's hello because Adele had <laughs> let her, her tracks up. But eventually, it did arrive on there. Like, OK, well, which hello is it? 
So in Europe, to overcome this problem, that Spotify doesn't know what songs are in each recording, let alone who owns those songs, they basically outsource that problem to the collecting societies and the music publishers and subsequently entities that have set up to deal with that issue. So the music publishing sector takes responsibility for working out of all the tracks that were streamed on Spotify last month, these are the songs that were streamed, and therefore this is what every publisher society songwriter is due. But in the US, when it comes to mechanical royalties, there was no collecting society that could take that job on like there was in all the European countries. And that's where this problem came, because they didn't know who to pay, they weren't paying people, and then the people who weren't paid were suing for damages. In the US, there's this thing called statutory damages. So in Europe, if Spotify hasn't paid you money that you are due, and you sued them, and you won, the court would pretty much order Spotify to pay you what you were due anyway. Yeah. And maybe a few legal costs and a bit of interest. But actually, you wouldn't be any better off going through the courts. So you might as well just go to Spotify and say, hey, Spotify, that's my song, where's my money? And then hopefully Spotify will pay you. Whereas in the US, because we have this thing called statutory damages, which is basically a a rate card of damages that can be awarded per infringement. So it has nothing to do with how much you were actually owed. It's like, okay, per infringement, and depending on various criteria and specifics, it could be as high as 150 grand per infringement, so per song. So if Spotify is streaming 100 songs that you own and haven't been paid royalties, that's 100 times 150 grand. And so that's how we ended up with the billion dollar lawsuits that you mentioned. And then there was a big debate, which was, okay, it is hard paying the mechanical royalties in the US because there isn't a collecting society that can help you. And Spotify doesn't know what songs it's streaming. It doesn't know what songwriters wrote those songs, what publishers published them. Whose problem is it to overcome this challenge? Is it Spotify's problem or is it the music industry's problem? And some people were like, well, Spotify has raised billions in investment and they've built a multi-billion dollar business on the back of our music. They should sort this out. And other people were like, well, really, it's for the music community to sort this problem out. Of course, if we bring it bang up to date, in 2018, the Music Modernization Act went through Congress in the US, which was heavily lobbied for by those in the music industry who recognised that the publishers and the songwriters had to play their part in trying to fix the issue around mechanical royalties in the US. And in theory, the Music Modernization Act that went through should help to sort out that problem by setting up a collecting society for mechanical royalties in the US, similar to the societies that exist in Europe. So hopefully, those billion-dollar lawsuits will cease to be filed moving forward. Although, with our journalist hats on, it was quite fun for the two to three years where every so often a new lawsuit was getting filed against Spotify over unpaid mechanicals, and everyone seemed to be demanding more money than the previous. (laughs) Now, I mentioned earlier the number of streaming services that have come and gone in the 10 years that Spotify has been around. But one thing that took a long time to come and definitely has not gone was Apple Music, which was, I mean, wasn't called that, but the Apple streaming service was rumoured for almost as long as Spotify has been around. Since Apple bought a company called La La in 2009, oh, this is Apple moving into streaming now to fight Spotify, and then didn't. It was just constant stories every six months about, oh, Apple's, they're about to launch their streaming service. It took a really long time. It wasn't until 2015 that Apple actually launched Apple Music and entered the market. And then everyone could properly start speculating what that meant for Spotify. Initially, Spotify was quite chipper about it. They kept saying, uh, actually, it's really helping us because everyone's writing these news stories saying, oh, what does Apple Music mean for Spotify? And lots of non-Apple users were going, what's Spotify? And then signing up to it. So they were saying it was actually driving growth for us, done really well. However, this summer, 
Apple Music in the US did overtake Spotify in terms of subscribers. And although globally Spotify is still significantly bigger than Apple Music, even if you're only counting its premium subscribers, let alone all of the free users, it is certainly true that we're now in a point where Spotify and Apple are the big two competitors in the streaming market on a global basis. Obviously, there are some countries where there are also local players which are as if not more significant. But globally speaking, yeah, we do now have a, a, a almost two horse race in streaming. And so it is constantly Apple versus Spotify, Apple versus Spotify. And I suppose for the music industry, it was important that another major player entered the field. Because as you say, there were quite a lot of startups back in the day, which at one point were kind of seen as equals to Spotify. I mean, Deezer was the most obvious. I mean, there was a couple Mm. of years where they were sort of growing at the same rate. And they were very much, oh, Spotify, Deezer, Spotify, Deezer, they are head-on competitors. And then there was that period where Spotify's growth just started to boom, boom, boom. And everybody else kind of stayed more or less around a few million subscribers they'd had for a few years by that point. So you got to the point where there was Spotify in streaming and there was iTunes in downloads. And those were the two massive players. But from about 2013, 2014, it became clear that the download market had now peaked. And so what had been this big cash cow for a few years was going into decline. Streaming was where the future was. And globally, we had this one player in premium streaming. Okay, yes, there was YouTube, but by this point, everyone was identifying the issues with YouTube and indeed with free streaming in general. And when it came to paid for streaming, which was obviously where all the growth was, we had this one major player. And to an extent, that was the music industry's fault because in the late 2000s, when there were all those startups, some of which we already mentioned on this edition of Setlist, the music industry made it incredibly expensive to enter the streaming market in the late 2000s and the early part of this decade. And they did that because they were desperate for cash. And so they were prioritizing equity and massive advances and upfront fees to help shore up a record industry, which was reaching its lowest ebb. But because they made it so expensive to enter the streaming business, very few companies actually did. And those that did almost opened for business with such high financial commitments to the music industry that unless things went really well really quickly or they could access a massive pile of cash, they were going to fail within a few years. So in some ways, it was the music industry's making that we ended up with this one dominant player. But that wasn't good for the music industry. You don't want one single player who controls the entire market. No, because in that period, while downloads were still somewhat stable and streaming was growing, digital revenues had become the largest slice of revenues for the global music industry. And then gradually as downloads slipped down, streaming became the biggest single revenue generator for the record industry. But that meant, yes, the streaming market is the biggest revenue generator, but that really means Spotify is the biggest revenue generator. So the arrival of music in 2015 was certainly good for the music industry because we now had two significant players in streaming. It took a little time for Apple to catch up. And I mean, it hasn't actually caught up yet globally, although it is now ahead of Spotify in the US. But it was important to have that second key player. And as you say, Perversely, while you might have thought it would have slowed down Spotify's growth, Spotify's growth actually increased post the launch of Apple Music because streaming became front page news across the world. So we do now have these two major players. Having said that, actually, two major players is too few for the music industry, particularly as in a lot of countries, one or the other is dominant. So in the US now, Apple is becoming dominant. But in most of Europe, these are still big in France. But in most of Europe, Spotify is so dominant that actually two players is not enough. We are starting to see Amazon coming up as a third player. But I mean, only really in the markets where Amazon is already significant. And we sometimes forget that although Amazon is huge in America and pretty damn big here in the UK, 
there are a lot of big markets where Amazon doesn't really exist yet. And of course, we have the regional players like Tencent and NetEase in China and VK and Yandex in Russia and Savan in India. But globally speaking, we do really still have these two massive players, Spotify and Apple, which is part of the reason why, as we said at the start, there is quite a lot of resentment slash fear about the power of Spotify within the music industry, particularly here in Europe, where they are so dominant. I think it's shared with Apple in America because Mm. Apple are becoming quite dominant. So when you go into record companies, and particularly the major record companies, half the time you'll be hearing people saying, oh, Spotify become too powerful. They're exploiting that power. Our licensing deals are coming up for renewal. What can we do to try and pull Spotify in line? Particularly this year when Spotify started doing some direct licensing deals with artists via their management companies and then announced that they were going to have a direct upload tool so that any artist could get their music into the system without a distributor or without a label. So we have got to a point where sometimes people are very much laying into Spotify in particular and then Apple in some markets too. But at the exact same time, because Spotify is so powerful, labels spend the rest of the time telling the Spotify people, and particularly the Spotify playlisters, that they are brilliant and lovely and the greatest people in the world and that they must come and see this band play here. And could they please playlist that artist there? Because they have become incredibly important gatekeepers between the music industry and the consumers who are spending money on music. Yeah, we talked earlier about how Spotify was changing the way people consume music and playlisting has been really key to that. I mean, it was always part of Spotify from the start, but it was generally it was a thing that users could do. And then some users on Spotify, particularly as they added more social functions, got more and more popular as playlisters. But it's more recently that Spotify has really become a big playlist itself and has really pushed its in-house playlists over and above those of third parties. And to an extent, that has led to yet more resentment within the music industry. Well, it's become the equivalent of, if only they'd put me in a box at the front of HMV. <laughs> yes, if only they'd playlist me or indeed give my playlist some profile. Because as you say, in the early days when Spotify was first allowing people to share playlists, but it was very much, we Spotify aren't going to do any playlisting. You, the users, should do some playlisting. Yeah, because I, I mean, over the years, Spotify's done lots of things to help support kind of people to push music in different ways on its platform but usually it was pushing third parties there was a whole period where you could have spotify apps and they were playlisting companies that would set up playlist apps on spotify that you could use that did various different things they were pushing labels to set up their own apps that had playlists within them but then they ditched all of that and then yeah more recently it's their own playlists that have been the things that have been at the front of it i mean certain particularly popular playlists that are spotify in-house playlists that really kind of drive a lot of the big I mean, a rap caviar in hip-hop and rap is a big one. There's very big pop playlists that really push and drive new music. I mean, some people argue you know, that those playlists are too powerful and are too influential on what artists are getting heard in general. I mean, not, not just in streaming, just more widely. And all of those playlists that individuals or labels or media or other influencers set up back in the day, possibly when Spotify was really encouraging them to do so, I mean, they're still there. They're still on the platform, but it can be quite hard to find them. You have to really know what you're looking for to find a labels playlist or a media's playlist. Because when you go into the Spotify app, what you are seeing up front very much is the playlists that Spotify own. And some of those obviously are automated. And then some of them are put together by the playlisters that they have in their offices around the world. But that has been another bone of contention with the labels who would say two things, which is A, well, hang on a second. We have our own playlists that we are using to try and promote our artists. And now it's really hard to find those on your platform. And that's all the more annoying because five years ago, you were telling us that we should be doing this and persuading us to spend money and time in doing it. And the majors were often buying companies who'd already set up playlists in order to get a head start. 
And now you're making it nigh on impossible for people to find our playlists. And certainly as we go into 2019, it is true that you have a, a small team of playlisters at Spotify and indeed at the other streaming services too, who have become incredibly powerful. And one of the challenges in the music industry now when you're trying to market a new release is how do you get it in front of these playlisters who have a limited amount of time in to, to speak to labels and distributors. Spotify does now have a pitching tool where anybody can pitch new music to the playlisters, although so much music is going through that. It's questionable to what extent it really genuinely helps, although Spotify insists that it does. But those playlists have become really powerful. Although I think it will be interesting to see in the next few years, there are some people who think that although a lot of the conversation in recent years has been more about the human created playlists on Spotify, Discover Weekly, the automated playlist for everybody on Spotify, had quite a lot of hype when it first launched. Yeah. But there's been a lot more talk about the human curated playlist. I think that's because those are the ones that as a label or distributor or an artist around you, you can try and influence. But that maybe ultimately the vast majority of the playlists on these services will be machine created in the future. Obviously, AI technology is getting much better at doing that. So rather than there being a rap caviar playlist, we would all have our own personalized rap caviar playlist based on what Spotify knows about our music listening. So it might be that in a few years' time, these super powerful playlisters that everyone now is desperately trying to meet and schmooze will all be sacked. <laughs> and, and then the future may be that machines are automating all of this process. And I'm sure that will throw up its own issues. And that will be another reason for the labels to resent Spotify and the other powerful streaming companies in the future. Well, of course, the criticism of playlists that generate based on what it knows you're going to like is that then it doesn't show you anything that's a risk and the question is can ai be good enough that it can build in risks and think well i think you'll like this but it's a bit of a wild card let's try it out or is it just going to play i mean i find i don't like discover weekly because i find it plays me stuff similar to stuff i've already listened to it's like well i've already listened to that other stuff i don't want to listen to something that's like it because i want to listen to something new and so the human curated things are better because it's human saying these are things that people in this sort of general area of music might like and therefore you're more likely to hear stuff that you don't expect to like or you don't know you're going to like and then uh, it turns you on to something new the ai makers are adamant that their technologies will be able to do that well in the of future. course they are of course they are we will see hey you've mentioned risk there and we're running out of time but there's one last major piece of the spotify story that we should be talking about where risk was part of it well yeah we talked about how the question of when apple would launch a rival streaming service followed spotify around for years there's another thing that followed around for years when will they float on the stock market? So Spotify had lots of investors pumping money in in the early years. Equity had also been given to the majors and to Merlin as part of those early licensing deals. But it seems certain that at some point Spotify was going to list on a stock exchange so that those early investors and indeed the rights holders could then cash in their stock on a stock exchange and have a nice big payday on the back of that. And then anybody could start investing in these companies. Spotify then borrowed a load of money to help further grow the business rather than selling yet more equity and sort of diluting the value of the shares. And we knew that Spotify's listing on a stock exchange was part of those loan agreements in that it would become more expensive to service those loans the longer it took for Spotify to list on a stock exchange because yeah. of some complexities in the deal. And so that just heightened the speculation on, okay, Spotify is clearly going to list at some point. When is it going to happen? And of course, what we were saying at the time was, when will the Spotify IPO, initial public offering, occur? Probably on the New York Stock Exchange. That seemed pretty certain quite early on. 
But in the end, we didn't have an IPO. No, it did float and it was on the New York Stock Exchange, but it was not an IPO. It was a direct listing, which is different. It's an unusual way of putting a startup business on a stock exchange for the first time. The main thing being you don't issue any new shares, which means that you don't make any new money by doing the listing. Which is usually the reason you float in order to raise more money. So yeah, what Spotify were doing was they were listing to placate existing shareholders so that they could cash in their stock if they wanted to and profit but without actually raising any new money. And this direct listing approach is sufficiently unusual that even the Wall Street Journals and Bloomberg's of this world, when they were reporting on Spotify's listing, once it became clear that that's what they were going to do, were always having to write in their articles, oh, let us explain what a direct listing is. Because even people who are in that industry, in the finance industry, were not really familiar with this slightly weird way of arriving on a stock exchange. But it did finally happen. Yes, so they did this direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange in the beginning of April. Shares began trading at $165.90. That's quite nice, isn't it? It got them a valuation of $30 billion to start with. Shares have gone up and down since then, mainly down more recently. But I think that's a trend that's true of quite a lot of, I mean, particularly tech shares of late. But they are there. They're on the stock exchange. That's another question we can stop asking about Spotify. Need to make room for another ongoing question that won't go away. And that question almost certainly, and it's a question that has become all the more pressing since the direct listing, because Spotify is now a publicly listed company that four times a year has to put out a financial statement where it talks about how it's doing and how much money it's made. The question is, when is Spotify going to go into profit? Because it brings in huge sums of money every single month. And it hands over huge sums of money to the music industry, the labels, the publishers, the songwriters and the artists every month. But once all the maths have been done, once the music industry has been paid, once all the staff have been paid and all those plush offices around the world have been paid for, there is a loss on the spreadsheet. Yes, and that's always been something people have pointed out ever since Spotify started, that it's a loss-making business. But once you're on the stock market and you have to put out those public reports, there's a lot more scrutiny of it because there's a lot more things to scrutinise. Also, as Spotify increasingly becomes the biggest revenue generator for the record industry, and we'll, I mean, will continue to be one of the biggest revenue generators, regardless of how big Apple gets or any other rivals. If that company doesn't make a profit, it doesn't really have a future. And if it's propping up a whole industry, then if it collapses, it's not really going to be very good for that industry. <laughs> so yes, the question is, Streaming is a scale business. Under the current business model, to have a profitable business, you need huge scale. So the question is, well, how big scale? Now, it's the paying users who are really bringing in the money, the free users, the ad business, although around the listing, they talked about future potential for the advertising side of the business. It's really subscriptions that bring in the serious cash. And so you end up with the question of, well, how many paying subscribers do you need for this to be a viable business? Ultimately, Spotify is hoping to keep about 30% of the money and then handing over about 70% of the money to the music industry. How big does your 30% need to be and how many premium subscribers do you need to have to get that sum of money that you can become a viable profit-making business? Now, every subscriber actually has a different value to them because the, the cost of a subscription is different in different countries. And then you have the family pans and the student discounts and the mobile bundles. But, you know, how many users, how much subscription money do you need to be a viable business? And can you get there? And Spotify's growth continues to be impressive, despite the arrival of Apple Music and Amazon also entering the market. But can it get to the point at which it has enough subscribers that it has a viable business? And if it can't, well, then what? How does it become profitable? Does it find other ways of making money? So, for example, one thing that people have been talking about increasingly in recent months is B2B streaming. 
where you sell streaming to pubs and clubs and bars and workplaces and you charge them more. Because it's not legal, despite the fact that lots of businesses do have just a personal Spotify account that they play over their stereo. That's not legal. So maybe B2B streaming is a huge opportunity, and I think it definitely is. Then you have the question of Spotify has over the years started to allow artists to sell tickets and T-shirts through the platform, not in the most user-friendly way, but it is there. Could that become a bigger business? So you have like an e-commerce business layered on top. Is there more money to be made out of brands, possibly through sponsorship and branded content more than through advertising? And one of the things that Spotify are talking about a lot this year is the podcasts that they are creating. Yeah. Not podcasts like this, which are available on Spotify, but the podcasts that Spotify themselves create. Oh, look at that. They're screwing us over like they do with the labels and the playlists by pushing their own podcasts forward. But maybe there's some brand partnerships they can do around those podcasts. Or what? How else can they make money? And then the flip side of all of this is, or can they bring their costs down? Now, Spotify became a very big company in the run-up to its direct listing. And I think there are a number of economies that could be made within the business and probably will be in the coming years. But then you get into, well, as they renegotiate their deals every two to three years with the music industry, will they try to change that deal so that rather than keeping 30% of their money, they keep 35% of their money. Yes. Which is actually what their CFO indicated. (laughs) And that's something that shareholders are very likely to start pushing for because your shareholders are going to want to get a bit of money for their input as well. And although the major labels in Merlin were shareholders and big shareholders in Spotify up until the direct listing, since then they've all sold their shares off. So they have uh, less of a say in uh, what happens. To Not completely, but moving yeah. in that direction. Yeah. So it seems almost certain that they're going to try and push to hand over less to the music industry. And then, of course, once they've got 35, which is what the CFO was indicating around the direct listing, will they then go for 40? The Chinese services are already on a 50-50 yeah. split. So could that be what they're ultimately aiming for? And, of course, all of that leads onto the conversation of these direct licensing deals we mentioned, this direct upload tool we mentioned. That's an interesting development. Could Spotify ultimately seek to cut out the labels and the distributors and the publishers and the societies, go and do deals directly with the artists and the songwriters, certain economies of scale in that? And I suppose it seems impossible that they could have deals with every artist and every songwriter. But if they could have deals with some significant artists and songwriters, could they then use that to pressure the music industry by saying, well, we're slightly less reliant on you than we were to do better deals? Some people speculate that while Spotify might not start signing up new artists, maybe they'll try and acquire some catalogue down the line. Ultimately, I'm not convinced that that's a particularly sensible route for Spotify to go, i.e. to become a record company. And those direct licensing tools and direct upload tools, that's not really what Spotify is currently doing. It's just a different way of acquiring rights to stream content. They're not actually becoming a record company or a catalogue owner. But there are some people who think that that might be what they do in the future. But all of this ultimately is part of the same conversation, which is... For the record industry to continue to grow and to keep the growth that it's seen in recent years, it needs streaming to work. Streaming can only work if the Spotify's and Apple Music's of this world in themselves become profitable, particularly for Spotify, who don't have gadgets and other services that they can bundle in with the streaming like an Apple or an Amazon does. These companies need to become profitable. How will that happen? How many subscribers do they need to become viable? And if they can't get that many subscribers, how else do they make money? How do they save money? And I think that is going to continue to be the big talking point over the next 12 months. So there you go. Over CMU's first 20 years, Spotify's first 10 have been one of the biggest stories in that time, for sure. When we come back here for our 30th anniversary podcast series, we'll be able to see if Spotify's first 20 years is such a big story. 
or if Spotify even makes it to its first 20 years. Or whether by that point Spotify is a subsidiary of China's Tencent Music, which could <laughs> be the ultimate outcome of this story down the line. I'm sure podcasts will still be around, though. I'm sure Setlist will still be there, streaming happily away in the Spotify app. But yeah, for now, that's the end of another of our CMU 20th anniversary editions of Setlist. Setlist is the music business podcast from CMU. It's presented by me, Andy Malt, and Chris Cook. It's produced by Matt Peaty. And for more on CMU, go to completemusicupdate.com. Recorded at Unique Facilities, Setlist is an unlimited production. (laughs) 